and welcome to episode 88 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Yeah, here we are, two mature minds. Yeah, mature minds, but... Quickly deteriorating mature minds because of our chosen beverages tonight. We've both got a little booze uh, going into things here. Uh, on this end, I've got yeah. the official drink of the Adult Music Podcast, Knob Creek Single Barrel. I'll have to get another bottle of that. I've got a bottle of Glenfiddich whiskey. Now, here's the thing about Glenfiddich. Yeah. This, um, I think this was the first good whiskey I ever drank. I drank it in college, and it kind of reminds me of college. Oh. And it's it's not really a light whiskey. It kind of when I think of what whiskey tastes like, mm. this is actually the taste I think of. So when I'm oh. comparing everything, because it, it was the first one I remember. Okay, you know, drinking and remembering and <laughs> waking up hungover from <laughs> way back in the day. So. Right. So if I have to describe the taste of uh, Glenfiddich, I would um, describe it as whiskey tasting. Mm. <laughs> I think it's my, it's sort of my <laughs> my whiskey lap horse. I think. So we're gonna run a little bit uh, loose and uh, fun tonight, uh, but I can't. Uh, Are we? Well, I think so. I'm, if we'll I start try. with uh, Knob Creek, then I can't uh, be responsible for my pronunciation by the end of the jazz section. But uh, oh, that's right. Yeah, we'll get through this somehow. You should put the jazz section first, then, in that case. <laughs> but then again, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, last week we had our Fall Frets episode, and that one did pretty good for right. downloads. Yeah, so. it did. A lot of good music there. So if you haven't heard that yet. You should go back and check that out. Uh, some good yeah, guitar good music playing on that, on that one. Mm. And tonight, uh, well, we've got a few different things, but we got a lot of horns tonight. Good music tonight. Yeah, trumpets specifically. A lot of trumpets. Yeah, in the jazz end, and, and I got a I got a trumpet in the uh, classical too. Yeah, you do. I managed yeah. to. Yeah, incidentally, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I should I should put these up for any trumpet fans up there. But there are a few more trumpet concerto releases in uh, classical music that are coming out later this month. So we okay. might get to them eventually on the cool. podcast, but I'll try to put them up on the Facebook site. There's also a new, um, you know, one of our favorite pianists, uh, Vikinger Olafsson, has a new album too, and I somehow have to get that in before oh, the end of the year. Uh, okay. So do another piano there are a few pa too. piano recordings I could do, but they're all long. That's the thing. I gotta, uh, like, they're all two CD ones, uh -huh. so it'll take more than an hour and a half to get through them. And next week... Uh, we've got a vocal episode coming up, and right. uh, the week after that, we did find out that on last Friday, just uh, the day before yesterday, the it's new Renitsky yeah. release uh, came out on streaming, so everyone can listen to it now. Yeah, it's on CD too, as far as I know. So we'll get that yeah. uh, in the following episode. Uh, things are lining up as yeah, we two uh, weeks from get today. to the end of the year. Yeah. yeah, as well as some other orchestral treats that day mm -hmm. in classical music. We are Adult Music, and we talk about six new releases usually every week here. And if you're wondering, what are they talking about? I want to let you know that in the episode description, you'll find links for all the music we're going to discuss on Spotify and Apple Music. So you can listen along before or after the episode. And also you can find a link to the full episode playlist where you can get all the music in one place on Deezer from France. That's our favorite streaming platform, CD Quality. Uh, they also host our podcast over there, too. They have podcasts now. You can listen to everything in one place if you desire. If you can't see the full description or the links aren't active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site, podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, 
I'd like to ask you to follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. Just take a moment, give us a ranking or write a review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, and we can increase our audience that way. You can also come over, check us out on Facebook. We've got a page there during the week, upload some new release information and other musical tidbits. You can leave a message or comment there. And you can also get in touch with us directly by email if you have any comments or questions. Our address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'd also like to let you know about a couple other podcasts. We're kind of sharing our audience base because it's hard to get discovered in the ocean. I think there's around 2 million podcasts out there now. But in the past few weeks, we've uh, recommended Tom Gowker's podcast, Something Came From Baltimore. That's a jazz blues and R&B interview podcast. And he's got interviews with some of the musicians that we've discussed recordings from here, like Todd Marcus and the late Joey DeFrancisco. Also, a couple others that uh, I'll recommend, podcasts that are interested in uh, sharing some uh, recommendations. We've got Neon Jazz. This is by Joe Domino, and he's got interviews with artists and musicians, also writers and other creative types. I'll put the link down there. And a non-music podcast cool. called The Same Difference. And uh, it's kind of an interesting kind of philosophical discussion about uh, embracing differences and building community among people. So um, check those out if you haven't uh, heard of them before. Always good to uh, get some podcasts lined up for the week when you're working, doing things around the house, going to work, get some new thoughts and ideas in your head. And I'll put Tom's little trailer for his podcast at the end of this episode. So if you stay around to the end, you can get a little taste of something came from Baltimore. All right, no news in the uh, music world this week, which is good. Um, yeah. No bad news anyway. There's always good news happening because there's new recordings coming out. We're we're, we're also planning our how, how's your uh, Christmas preparations going? There, we're planning the Christmas episode. It's about a month away, I'd say. I'd say I have a half dozen things on there. Oh geez, I have five that I have to kind of get three down to three, yeah. and it's going to be hard. I'm not saying that any yeah. of them are really good because I can't really listen to them yet. Well, I've eliminated another several you know i said i don't want to listen to this mm -hmm. but there there are five i was like yeah that sound that looked like pretty intriguing okay so maybe i'll post about those too before we do the episode all right and off we go tonight with our uh it's a trumpet episode but we're not going to start with the trumpet in classical music i only have one trumpet recording mm -hmm. but i decided to go for uh the opening here um an album called serenata brazilian music for chamber orchestra and this is by the English Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Neil Thompson. It's on the Naxos label. Now, if you think, oh, Brazilian music, samba, bossa nova, <laughs> uh, I think you're in for a big surprise yeah. here. It, it's sort of like when we talk about American music, we think jazz, we think uh, ragtime, we think blues. We, you know, but uh, in the 19th century. It wasn't like that. It was uh, songs, and it was like there was a lot of yeah. classical music, a lot of European music, basically. And uh, Brazil was the same way. Um, uh, the, the music we think about as Brazilian music really took root in the well, maybe it took root before that, but it really became you know identified with Brazil mm -hmm. in the 20th century. That was really yeah. the big century for the Americas in general, and the United States in particular, really, and for you know the music from the Americas. Anyway, this is. Um, an album of Brazilian music uh, from the 19th century, so the Romantic era. Now, here's the odd thing. This music doesn't sound romantic. It sounds classical. It sounds like yeah. Mozart and Haydn, which is really interesting. 
and it's very light, but it's very appealing. It's not something you want to go to for any uh, like musical, like philosophical discovery through music, but uh, for light entertainment, it'll give you an idea of what was going on in Brazil in the uh, 19th century among the uh, the higher classes. This album, the music serves as an example of what art music in Brazil was like in Brazil. Yeah, also other forms like the choro, you know, all the, which is the Brazilian song. This all happened in the 20th century. And it was really, um, in classical music, it was really Vila Lobos that, um, mm. the reason why he's considered to be such a great composer in Brazil, well, because he was a good composer, but also because he really introduced a lot of these um, Brazilian, like, traditional elements into classical music. So right. this is all before his time on this album. It harkens back to Mozart's era and its adhesion to form and lack of romantic era ego. So there's <laughs> nothing big and Wagnerian or Listian or um, highly virtuosic here. Anyway, let's just talk about this. It's a, it's a light beginning to tonight's um, podcast or program. Uh, the first uh, composer is Carlos Gomez, who lived from 1836 to 1896. His Sonata for Strings, this work was composed in Milan in 1894. And uh, if all of these works sound European to your ear, there's a good reason for that. A lot of these composers went to Europe to study. That was where you mm. would have learned uh, music like this. There were no schools in uh, the Americas at the time. There, there probably were in the United States. But again, the big schools we know today all flourished in the 20th century. Anyway, Carlos Gomez's Sonata for Strings, Allegro Animato. It's very cheerful. And you can hear Gomez's Italian training and the springiness of the rhythm, which sounds more Italian than anything you would think of as Brazilian. It's charming, full of appealing melodies. And it's also old-fashioned for its time. Maybe not in Brazil, but if this were played in Europe, it just wouldn't fit in. It would sound like it was very old-fashioned. Mm. It's got straightforward form and harmony. In, in the Romantic era, the composers liked to blur the form a lot, so you didn't really know where you were in the work, and they would suspend the harmony before it would reach a climax. That doesn't happen here. By the way, Gomez apparently wrote a lot of operas, and here he's going directly for instrumental form. Uh, this particular performance has an enthusiastic vitality to it. I mean, these um, this ensemble really throw themselves into this uh, work, really selling it for, mm. you know, it's it bringing out all its best qualities. It's, a, it's an appealing work. It's very light and very appealing. Uh, the recording is clear. There's a bit of a reverb halo around the strings. But the detail registers well. I actually like that reverb halo sound. It really make, gives it a mm. live sound to me. Second movement, Allegro Scherzoso. Uh, there's a bit of uh, the rhythm from the scherzo from Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony. Dun, da, 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 there's a bit of that mm. sort of rhythm in this, in the opening theme of this second movement. There's a contrasting theme featuring skittering downward lines. The movement grows warm and minor in the first minute and then introduces a generous melodic line in the second minute. Uh, the Beethovenian opening comes back in the third minute and we get a recapitulation of the opening material. Third movement, Largo, very slow. This has long sustained yearning chords opening the work. Uh, the melody comes in in a minor key and also has a relaxed yearning quality to it. It's appealing and doesn't really reach a point of high drama or anything like that. It seems like the work has the quality of a divertissement, something light and appealing, just meant to just, you know, to be listened to mm. at a dinner party in the background or something like that. It's a relatively long movement, though. It's 8 minutes and 12 seconds compared to the rest, which is all like 3 or 4 minutes, the other movements. There's something um, very Dvorak about the melodic material in the second to third minutes. 
it's got a slight folky quality to it in the way that Dvorak's, um, like say Ninth or I'm thinking of his American Quartet, you know, echoes these sort of like pentatonic themes. Mm. Um, in the fourth minute, we get staccato lines in the accompaniment, propelling the rhythm as familiar themes from the opening material are heard and the opening material repeats beginning at the six minute mark. The fourth movement, Vivace, is um, kind of subtitled O Burico de Pau. That's uh, Portuguese. I don't know if I pronounced it right, of course. Uh, it means the wooden donkey. This sub movement has extra musical techniques such as rhythmic ostinatos to portray galloping. And, mm. you know, and uh, this has a lively opening. We can hear the galloping or rack, rapid rocking back and forth of the donkey in the rhythm. I kind of think of this as like a, well, like a hobby horse, something rocking back and forth. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, the movement is upbeat, cheerful, charming. It's a bit of a bonbon of a sonata, you know, a little sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good, lively performance and vivid sound quality. All right, track five, Francisco Braga, Madrigal Pavan from 1901. Ballroom dance was popular in Belle Epoque, Rio de Janeiro. Mm-hmm. And this work reflects that. Madrigal is a vocal genre. And here, Braga is linking that lyricism to the sedate pavan, which is a Spanish dance. Uh, the rhythm of this is rather interesting. It's sedate with a rather odd bounce on the second beat. That's typical of a pavan, really. Uh, there are also charming hesitations in the rhythm that draw the ear. The melodies are indeed lyrical and very appealing. Uh, this piece put me in mind of, um, if anyone's ever heard uh, Gershwin's Lullaby for String Quartet, mm. with its lyrical melody and gently propelled ostinato rhythm. It has the same sort of quality. I think Gershwin uses some more interesting chords, though. The middle section of this work is heavily melodic and more straightforward rhythmically. Okay, next, track six through eight. This is a name that I've actually heard before, Alberto Nepomuceno. Um, his Sweet Antiga, which means Sweet Antique, Opus 11. Yeah, these are all very old-fashioned sounding works. This is a version for string orchestra, and it was written in Bergen, Norway in 1893. And uh, I think Grieg was around there at the time, so although he may have been in Europe. This um, reflects a trend in Europe for writing suites based on dances from an earlier era. And indeed, uh, a lot of these were set in the Baroque era. This particular one starts with a minuet trio, very unusually, that usually you comes later. Yeah. You're starting out with it. It's really kind of <laughs> not, not me for a loop, actually. All three of these um, sort of movements are can be described by the word charming. It's old-fashioned. The old-fashioned menuet invites that term. It's light with that one of those, uh, you know, five-to-one bass rhythms done, done, you know, five, you know, repeating. That keeps it moving. At the uh, one-minute mark, we get in, get the trio, which marches emphatically. The lighter menuet repeats afterwards. Second uh, movement is an aria, burnished string sound, as the strings play the theme en masse. The orchestra, I should say, is modestly sized, big enough to generate warmth of tone, but not so big that it sounds like Mahler. Uh, there's a light, lighter middle section. Uh, then the opening material comes back at around the third minute. Yeah, so I thought the orchestra, you know, they were big enough to get a, a warmth of tone mm. in this, which was pretty interesting to me because they sounded smaller in the previous work. Anyway, third movement, Rigodon. It's a quickly moving dance movement at a minute and 35 seconds is a full cadence and a complete change of character as a lyrical section comes in. Um, and I guess that's what a Rigodon does because I'm, I'm very familiar with um, Ravel's Rigodon from his Tombeau de Couperin, which does the exact same thing. 
Mm. It's got a highly contrasting middle section. At around three minutes and 30 seconds, the opening comes back. We get a brief repeat of the lyrical middle section before being sped to the final cadence. Next is another work by Alberto Nepomuceno. We're on track nine. Uh, This is his Serenata, which was written in Petropolis in Brazil in 1902. So this is the title track of the album. It has a staccato bass with a melody played over it. The pizzicati, I guess, imitate a guitar, while the upper strings would be the singing voice. At a minute and 22 seconds, we launch into a warm middle section featuring a few light effects. At a minute and 50 seconds, there's a full stop, followed by a heavier rhythm, accessing the one and three in the bass. I think that's what they are. This is interrupted by a fleeter, lightly orchestrated middle section, and then the heavy one-three rhythm comes back. This doesn't sound like dominant tonic. It sounds more like median tonic to me. But I might have been hearing that wrong. I don't know. When this ends, we hear the opening material again. And then finally, the last work on the album, Leopoldo Miguez, Suite a Antiga, which I now know means antique because we've heard it twice on this <laughs> album, comes up a lot. Okay, so we started with a big work and we end with one here. So the two biggest works on the album sandwich the ones in the middle. Um, this is a 24-minute suite. The first movement is a preludio, a prelude, and it starts with a lovely flourish from the various sections of the orchestra with a very present wind bass, possibly a bassoon. Uh, the melody pleasantly floats like a classical work from Mozart's era. A pleasant pastoral wind theme comes out after a minute and 30 seconds. The rest of the orchestra piles on with that melody, and then we're off to a quieter section and then back to the beginning material. And there's a brief ending coda as the music descends to the sweet ending chord. Second movement, Sarabanda, Andante. I'm always kind of happy when I see that title, Sarah. I like Sarabands. <laughs> they're slow. They're kind of something really hypnotic mm. about them. Anyway, in this one, the orchestration is the same as the opening movement. String heavy here. It's got a simple brief theme in the opening. A slightly contrasting theme begins at around a minute and 10 seconds. The ensemble has a nice ebb and flow of dynamic levels in this movement, and more contrasting themes follow, but the orchestration remains string-heavy throughout. By about 4 minutes and 25 seconds, we're back to the opening material. Third movement, Gavota, a gavotte. This has a dancing rhythm to it. Winds play the first part of the theme, and strings the answering second part. Throughout the work, it has short melodic themes with brief answers, and it's a pretty brief movement itself at a minute and 50 seconds. Fourth movement, aria, et double, or and double, et double, I don't know. This, this movement is nine minutes long. <laughs> it begins, <laughs> which is long for this work. It begins with a monophonic oboe call. Monophonic means it's playing alone. Other winds come in to the har- harmonize the line, and bassoon provides counterpoint. Uh, shimmering strings take over the theme at about 40 seconds in, and this movement unfolds very slowly with the opening material repeating and trading off parts between winds and strings. This seems to be a set of reorchestrated variations. Finally, at around 5 minutes and 20 seconds, we get to the uh, double or double part of the movement, which speeds up, provides contrast via a more flowing rhythm and longer phrases. This andante speed section continues to the end, and playing remains taut throughout the movement. Final movement is a jig, or jiga in this case. It has a nice bounce to it, provided by the strings, who get the main parts of the opening theme. The movement moves with a determined sense of purpose towards its cadences, which are often elided with the sections that follow or quickly departed from once reached. So you don't really hear them when they come. Um, Big grand chord at the end with bass and tippity widening its impact. 
So this was a light, easy, enjoyable listen. All the music lightweight gems as presented here. It's all music that aims to please, and it does just that in these performances, which are enthusiastic, and one is drawn in by the vitality the works are played with. Now, we should understand that Brazilian sounds and rhythms came into play, as I said at the beginning, after this music was written, So, as far as like composed music went. So what we get here is European in nature, but it's what the uh, bourgeoisie of Rio de Janeiro listened and danced to in the Romantic era. So, an enjoyable light listening, not for those looking for a musical philosophy lesson. <laughs> There's no <laughs> philosophy here. If you're looking for something light, you can't go wrong. Play it at a dinner date. <laughs> <laughs> you would never know these were Brazilian if you didn't yeah, there's uh, no read way. that. Yeah. They're interestingly fully European sounding, uh, but they are really melodic, pleasant, easy on the ear. And if you want some classical sounding romantic works that just uh, kind of make a nice background or, you know, have very pleasant themes, easy to follow. You can't go wrong with this. And you've probably never heard them before. If you're like uh, most listeners. No, you definitely so, haven't heard these you know, before. Yeah. Never. <laughs> you know, it's always nice to hear something that sounds familiar, but yet is really fresh. And so I enjoyed them. Yeah, it was a pleasant yeah. listen. Pleasant listen. And, you know, also we need to know that, you know, Brazilian music wasn't always the way we think it is. We have to change our view of, you know, what Brazil is like and or any, really anywhere in the world. And, you know, yeah. just to kind of go further into the past and see what uh, what was going on. So this album provides a bit of a uh, yeah, bit of a history lesson, too, in that historical way. Historical perspective, yeah. yeah, for sure. Now, the next album we're going to talk about is was really great. I really like this one a lot. This is Origins. Mm -hmm. The performer is Lucy Horsch, who is a um, Dutch recorder player. And this is on the Decca record label. Now, you don't really hear um, many um, no. recorders, soloists making albums. I was a little afraid when I, when I saw that, oh, what has he got for me this week? Can I really listen to a whole recording of recorder music? But Well, here's the, here's the answer to that. Uh, you can if it's all yeah. Baroque recorder music, because that's just really interesting and mm -hmm. in fact lucy horse has made two albums of baroque works where yeah. she's the soloist which i will now have to get after hearing this one <laughs> but this particular recording uh, it, it's all 20th century works yeah with the and they're all adapted for the recorder none of these was originally written for the recorder except for one that she herself co-wrote with someone else when i saw this it's like oh boy this uh what would a recorder sound like yeah, <laughs> in, this, with She's the, got a, in these works, a bunch of different recorders here too, right? One of the things I was worried yeah. about is, you know, recorder can be a bit chirpy or cuckoo clocky kind of sometimes. That yeah. I thought, oh man, but no, it's she's often got, used for that purpose. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> she's got a lot of uh, different timbres and some really uh, big lower range uh, recorders uh, in here too. I'm, I'm sure there's official names right. for them, but I'm not a recorder expert, so. You're going to hear a lot of different things. Well, yeah, out. they're probably like alto, bass, whatever, like with saxophones. But it does say on the album, recorders with an S. So yeah. she's not playing only one instrument here. The recorder, by the way, was never adapted for the modern orchestra, right? It has flutes, oboes, hmm. you know, English horn, but no recorder. The flute is the only non-reed instrument. Is that right? I think so. The only non-reed instrument oh, the in the wind winds? section. Hmm. Yeah. I think so, yeah. I think so. I can't think yeah. of another one off the top of my head. Yeah, everything's and, read or double read. Would, well, there's the piccolo if you want to count those, but guess. those are really more for effects. That's not really a... I think there has been a piccolo concerto written, though. Oh, it must be unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I've known people who played the piccolo and they they practice with earplugs in. <laughs> this is true because the, the the sound is so piercing, it'll yeah. just kind of wreck their wow. hearing that they have to practice. So <laughs> that's another instrument and another story. Yeah, they play with yeah. they play with headphones in. I, I don't know if all of them do, but this one did. Mm. <laughs> so as a result of not being adapted to the orchestra, the uh, recorder stayed close to its folk roots, and this is what Lucy Horsch is sort of um examining or exploring on this album. This is a pretty interesting thing because we think about the flute, right? It's the silver or gold instrument. Mm -hmm usually silver, that we often see in the orchestra and that soloists play, the classical flute. But the original flute, of course, was made of wood. And yeah. uh, we hear them in Baroque music a lot, um, the, the transverse flute. You know, it eventually became a metal instrument as the industrial age uh, went mm -hmm. on and uh, new discoveries were made in acoustics and things like that and materials. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Lucy Horsch, um, the uh, soloist here, uh, who's very young, by the way, she looks like she's, in her, she's in her early 20s. I think she might be like around 23 or something. She remarks that when she gives concerts around the world, people will often come up to her with a local instrument that's close to the recorder and sound production and ask her to try it. It must be a really yeah, interesting fun, experience. Yeah. 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 And that's what gave her the idea for this album. Origins is about trying to get at the origins of classical music. She plays a lot of Baroque music in general and has found that folk music played a big role in Baroque compositions. However, we're not going to hear any Baroque. Um, no. Compositions on this album. Oh, she has two previous albums that are all Baroque music. Check those out. They're great, I'm sure. I'm going to have to hear them. Anyway, let's go through these tracks. I thought this was just fascinating. I really love this record. First track, Charlie Parker. What? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Charlie Parker Ornithology, 1946, uh, arranged by Rob Horsting here. All of these are going to be arrangements. Mm -hmm. And here, Horsch is accompanied by a, an ensemble called uh, Fuse who are a genre-hopping sextet with roots in Amsterdam's neoclassical club scene, according to the booklet. Uh, I looked them up on the internet, and there are at least four ensembles called Views, so you have to look for the one that's in Amsterdam, okay, to get the right one. There are videos of them on YouTube, too. But you have to kind of specify, because otherwise you might get the, the rock band from America or, you know, mm. the jazz sextet from America, who are a completely different uh, <laughs> outfit. Anyway, they, they create a pleasant swinging feel to this, and Horsch fits into the jazz idiom well. Um, her solo may not be tonally idiomatic, but she sounds natural in the swing rhythm. This piece raises a smile. It was a good idea to tackle the composition with this ensemble. They play it well. All right, now, something always has to be said about like when a jazz piece is um, tackled in classical music. We're, we're looking at something... That's been composed for the and arranged for the musicians, and um, they're never going to sound like jazz. And a lot of them often will sound kind of mechanical. This one does not. It has a very natural feeling to it, as far as classical versions of jazz goes. I mean, it doesn't really. Mm. I, I think she could probably fit in with a jazz ensemble playing this, probably. But um, th this is one of the the better experiments of this yeah. sort. I liked it a lot. It really did make me smile. The violin really digs in on this one too. I Without the violin, it wouldn't have had yeah. quite that snap to it. But uh, I thought uh, right. that was a good solo yeah. there, too. They all sound, this was beautifully recorded, too. The, the fuse yeah. themselves were beautifully recorded. Yeah. It was like they were live in the room. It was, it was just a fantastically clear recording. I was going to say one thing about this whole recording, as you're going to go through all these different combinations, and there's various yeah. different instrumentations, but it all sort of leans towards sparseness. 
There's never too yeah. much sound going on, which I mean helps the recorder because it's a light tone, but it also gives a lot of like uh, space to listen into, which I found intriguing mm-hmm. for all of the different yeah. combinations and material that it goes through. It's an interesting observation. Yeah, that would make mm-hmm. sense. These were all arranged, and apparently the uh, arrangers all had a very sensitive ear to what the uh, recorder was going to sound yeah. like in these um, textures. So we have uh, Astro Piazzolla, second track, uh, Libertango, and this one features Carol Kreienhoff on the Bandoneon, which is the uh, kind of like an accordion, yeah. except that it has buttons yeah, mm-hmm. instead of keys. It has buttons on both sides. And the Ludwig Orchestra provides some strings. This is record. This is performed at a very quick pace. It sounds mm. like a highly caffeinated tango, and uh, blends nicely with the tempo of the previous Charlie Parker track. So I guess that's why it mm. has this speed. It's clever programming. Horsch is athletic on the recorder here, popping her notes out in quick staccato phrases. I really love that sound. The the the, the recorder staccato. Mm. It's got this this popping breathy sound. It's too fast to dance to, though. Um, but this uh, piece has exciting energy to it, and there's a full stop at the end. This one, there's there's a big pause. Okay, third track: Peter Maxwell Davies, uh, British composer who uh, died kind of boy. It's not recently anymore, but he died in the 2010s at some point. Farewell to Stromness from the Yellow Cake Review, uh, 1980, and this is arranged by Max Nige as is the previous piece. That's K-N-I-G-G-E, or Kaniga could be too. I don't really know. Hmm. Kanish, Kaniga? I mean, he's probably Dutch. I think they pronounce the K. Uh, by the way, I was in New York, and uh, <laughs> you, you call those potato things Kanishes. Yeah, Kanishes, right? yeah. And it's got a K and I had a friend from from outside of New York visiting, and he says, can we get a niche? And I didn't know what that was. <laughs> Never heard it said that way before. <laughs> a niche. <laughs> you explain it to me. Oh, a knish. A knish. <laughs> a niche. <laughs> yeah, anyway. All right, and this one features the Ludwig Orchestra 2. This has this uh, rising bass line, ostinato bass line, starting it off. And the recorder comes in. This is really the first time we're hearing this heavily folk-like melody. Although I guess you could consider the tango to be sort of a a folk-like music of Argentina, the the melodies. It sounds like it comes from the British Isles and or Ireland, and it's a lovely piece, really, really nice. Mm. All right, now we move to the United States, um, Simple Gifts. This is a uh, a Quaker tune arranged by Max, I'm going to say the K, Kaniga, with the Ludwig Orchestra. Um, we know this piece, we wouldn't know this if it weren't for Aaron Copeland. Um, he said it in Appalachian Spring. This is not his setting of it, though. This is... Um, mm. A, a new arrangement. Uh, Copeland also set this on its own, but that's a, also another piece. Here we hear this uh, straight with a droning bass, so it's really like a folk tune here. It's gorgeous, and it's an instantly memorable melody. Uh, the droning bass eventually disappears, and we get counter melodies. Uh, lovely all around, and I really enjoy hearing Horsch's tone on this and really the whole album so far. All right, track five, we go back to Astro Piazzolla. Fuga y Misterio from the opera Maria de Buenos Aires, 1968. This is arranged by Marine Van Prien. I don't know how to speak Dutch. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, Carol Kreienhoff is playing the bandoneon again on this. And the Ludwig Orchestra provides the orchestra. Lively recorder line here with scraping wood sounds from the percussion. Mm. A violin comes in from the Ludwig Ensemble with a counter melody. 
There's a contrasting, slow, moody middle section in which Horst plays in a more legato manner. Uh, she gets a lot of expression in her tone, which is, I think, one of the reasons why she's such a big star on the recorder. The Vidonian gets a large solo part after Horst's solo in this, too. All right, tracks six through ten are some of my favorite. Bela Bartok, uh, Romanian folk dances. These were originally for violin and piano, and I'm very familiar with them in that guise. These are for now a recorder and a cymbalom. Is that how you say that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah Danny Luca playing the cymbalom. A strange little box instrument. Yeah, it's like an East European mm. sort of hammered instrument. and It's kind of piano-like, but it's much, much lighter. All right, and these are all arranged by Lucy Horsch herself. Okay, so the violin and piano version I know very well, and this is a really interesting change from that. The recorder makes the melody much sweeter than on the violin. The violin tone adds a lot of uh, paprika to the <laughs> to the sound, and all the paprika has been removed in these um, versions, I think. Okay, we also get the uh, cymbal I'm accompanying, which is probably more appropriate than a piano, but it's originally scored for a piano. The first one, stick dance, very appealing if dispelling some of the haunting weirdness of the violin and piano version. Second is the, uh, let's see, this one is sash dance. The two instruments use sweeten the piece up. It's like the difference between dark chocolate and milk chocolate <laughs> in taste. Like dark chocolate is bitter. Yeah, it's some milk and sugar to it. It's sweet. That's kind of what happened here. It's, it's actually a pretty good uh, comparison hmm. between the violin version and the recorder version here. Track eight, in one spot. Uh, the haunting quality of this piece, which was originally played on the violin's harmonics, is captured here by the hypnotic repeating chords of the cymbalom and the quarter being played in its high end. The, the harmonics have such a haunting tone on the violin, though, that I really did miss them here. Fourth, Dance from Buxum, a more song-like, slower piece with the cymbalom playing the accompaniment in its appealing low end. Um, the recorder is in its mid-range with lovely phrasing from Horsch. And finally, we get to uh, um, the sixth dance, Fast Dance. Oh, the two of them are together, Romanian polka and then Fast Dance. So these are connected onto one track. There's a heavy cymbal on bass chord or chords starting this off with the recorder playing the athletic line with its complicated changing rhythm brilliantly. The dance rhythm is strongly felt. Um, this is a must hear for fans of this set of works. It's a really new take on them, but I have to say I prefer the violin version. This is new to my ear, and I really liked that. Okay, track 11 is Claude Debussy's uh, solo flute work, Syrinx, which um, apparently wasn't even arranged. She, she just played it on the recorder. And this lighter-sounding version for solo recorder captures the tone of the work almost completely. The melodic line has a voluptuously erotic quality to it, You'd think the recorder couldn't quite produce the tone necessary for that feeling because it has this more laser-like tone quality. But uh, Horsch's injection of a pouting moodiness into the line makes one come away aware that there's an erotic quality to the writing here. All right, tracks 12 through 14. Boy, what a surprise this was. Igor Stravinsky. First one is number one from three pieces for solo clarinet. And Lucy Horsch arranged this herself. So this is originally for clarinet. And this follows on from uh, Debussy's work very well. It starts way in the recorder's low end, really deep down. And Horsch is so expressive that we get a primordial feeling out of an instrument that doesn't seem capable of communicating that quality. But it does. This is a really good uh, player here. Track 13 is Stravinsky's Chanson Russe, um, which is a Russian maiden song from uh, Mavra, which is, an, I think, it's an opera. 
which I've never heard, arranged by Max Kaniga with the Ludwig Orchestra accompanying. Uh, this piece has a bit of a circus feel to it. Um, if you've heard some of um, Stravinsky's shorter pieces like Ragtime, that sort of feeling. Mm-hmm. It has that 5-1 dun-dun-dun-dun bass line and the recorder floating way above with its seamless Russian-sounding melody. Track 14 is number three from Three Pieces for Solo Clarinet by Stravinsky. Um, this is a lively work with an energetically bouncing melody requiring some athletics from the original clarinetist, but also here from Horsch on the recorder. An intriguing tone is held throughout. I like that the breathy attack can be heard even at this speed. So this is pretty fascinating. Master Piazzolla figures very heavily on this album, and we hear him again in uh, Cafe 1930 with uh, Sean Shibe on the guitar. This was originally for violin and guitar, and we heard a version of this on the Akiko Myers album that we Mm. talked about about a month ago, a little more now. Um, And I really wasn't too happy with that performance. Um, As for this one, he's he's playing the acoustic guitar here, is Sean Shibe, and we're reminded of how expressive he is. This particular performance captures more of the idiomatic quality of the tango rhythm, but I feel like the recorder isn't really well suited to this particular mood. This is a slow work, unlike Libertango, which we heard earlier, um, which was very fast in that mm. performance. Horsch twitters beautifully in the faster material at the end of the first minute. It's a far more pleasant listen than Anakiko Myers was. Horsch has a wonderful sense of melody and shapes her lines beautifully, but I'm kind of missing the tango idiom here. Despite Shibe's expert pacing, um, the heaviness and sadness just isn't there. Tango has like this real sort of pain of life quality to it that just mm-hmm. isn't in this work. And it is in Piazzolla's works. I'm not even sure that um, that quality can be captured, especially in the high range Horsch is playing in on the recorder. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, this is an enjoyable listen. I rather liked this performance, even though I didn't find it terribly idiomatic. All right, we get to some traditional things here. Traditional Slovak work. Um, oh, I have no idea how to say this. <laughs> Passonacolo, <laughs> arranged by Max Kaniga, and there's no translation of this. I should have gone for Google Translate. It's a it's a Slovak traditional melody. Uh, the Ludwig Orchestra here explodes the first chord, and it's off to the races as the, the recorder hops along at a high speed to play this traditional Slovak tune. Impressive virtuosity here from uh, Horsch, and part of that virtuosity is Horsch's maintaining her tone throughout. Okay, a composer that um, I'm kind of interested in. He's uh, Isang Yun. He is South Korea's number one composer. Like in Japan, we think of Takamitsu, and we think of Toru Takamitsu, and we think of who the great Japanese composer is. In South Korea, it's Isang Yun. And uh, I should mention, there's just recently been a recording of his orchestral works um, released that mm-hmm. we should probably talk about because um, we don't get to hear enough of his music internationally. And we should hear more, I think. Anyway, this particular piece is called The Actor with the Monkey, and it's from his uh, Chinesische Bilder from 1993. Uh, Yun, incidentally, also died fairly recently. Well, not see, the years are going by so fast. He died during our lifetimes, let's just say that. Hmm. He sets off, um, these, are, these are works with Chinese themes. Um, there are Asian sounding modes used here and hmm. clever imitations of monkey sounds, which Horsch captures well in her phrasing. She's got a lot of versatility and imagination and plays uh, this work with both. I really enjoyed the creativity of the writing from Isang Yung as well. 
Track 18, Bela Bartok again. Three folk songs from Sisk. Or Sisk. We only hear one of them here, I think. This is um, with Danny Luca again on the Cymbalom. And uh, she and uh, Lucy Horsch have arranged this work. This is a slow tempo folk theme from Bartok. Again, the recorder sweetens the tone of the melody, while the Cymbalom adds some East European flavor. Some paprika. That's why I just think of East European music as being the spice paprika. I don't know. It's a peculiar thing with me. Track 19, traditional Irish folk melody, She Moved Through the Fair. This is a very haunting melody. Mm. And Horsch does well to capture the haunting quality of that beautiful theme. Though, to be honest, this and the next track both fare much better when they're sung. I think the words have a lot to do with these Mm. works really coming across. They're beautiful melodies, though. Track 20 is traditional Irish again, Londonderry Air, and uh, Danny Boy, or that is Danny Boy. the melodies. Yeah, arranged by Max Kniga with the Ludwig Orchestra. Um, We've heard this approach already where Horsch plays one song solo while the next is accompanied by the orchestra earlier in the program. It's repeated here. It separates the tunes. Hearing this beautiful melody, I feel again this is better suited to the voice than to such a high-toned instrument like the recorder. It's predictably beautiful here, though. The accompaniment is string-heavy and sweet-toned. All right, tracks 21 and 22. Lucy Horsch teams with Bao Sisoko, who is a Cora player from Senegal. And I think he lives in France now. So they've uh, composed these works together. I guess they're sort of spontaneous compositions. I, I don't think they're improvisations, though. They may have originated as that. The first one is called uh, Tilbo, and the chorus starts the composition. Uh, it's beautifully recorded here. Boy, this, 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 the sound of this instrument leaps out of the speaker as well, sounding like it's in the room. Um, the recording quality captures its light tone. The sound the chorus makes is the intriguing part of this track, though the recorder line has some pretty cool breath effects in it. It's a pretty simple composition. Track 22, same duo, a piece called Nyami. And Horse starts this out with a modal melody, but when the chorus bursts in, the ear is captivated. The sound of the instrument is captured so well on this recording. Uh, most of the musical instruments here is coming from the chorus too, with Horsch playing melodies, but seeming to accompany. So I think uh, Bao Sisoko rather steals the show on these two uh, tracks. Track 23, Her- Heraclio Fernandez, El Diablo Suelto, which means the devil on the loose. <laughs> this is arranged by Marine Van Pruyen, yeah, with Sean Chibe on guitar, our good friend Sean Chibe. And we get a real Latin feel here in both Horsch's phrasing and Chibe's attack on his chords and feel for rhythm in general. Uh, Horsch has some appealing, twittering, repeated notes in her line. I'm liking their ensemble here a lot. Okay, and the um, Fuse comes back for the final track. Another one that Charlie Parker played, it's it's composed by Zequina de Abru, Abru and Charlie Parker also, this is part of his performance. Uh, Tico Tico, uh, the original tune is called Tico Tico no Fuba. Incidentally, in 1945, the Andrews sisters made this tune popular in the U.S. It's a Brazilian song. It's a, it's a choro. Fuse is bookending this program. Um, we get another Charlie Parker arranged tune. The ensemble bursts in with a full range of sound after the thinner guitar and recorder pairing of the previous track. I have to say, Fuse do foreign rhythms exceptionally well. Uh, foreign for them, and they're Dutch, so the jazz rhythm and the uh, now here the uh, the Latin feel of this piece. Uh, Horsch is athletic here and sounds comfortable in her lines. 
but I'm wondering about how idiomatic she is here. She twitters a lot of them at her very top end, a lot of her lines. The athleticism of her playing is impressive, though. Uh, that said, this is an appealing track, though track one, or Ornithology by Charlie Parker, is the one to hear if you're sampling. Live, very present recording of the ensemble and the percussion especially register with a richness of sound. Well, as I said earlier, after this, I will certainly be going back to hear Lucy Horsch's previous two Baroque albums. Uh, one of them is a collection of Baroque works by various composers, and the other one is a music by Vivaldi. She's an infectious soloist with a sound that captures the ear, an ease of rhythm that makes one smile. Great sound quality, too, uh, throughout the album. Close, close up and bright, and... After an album like this, one wonders where she's going to go next. This is really <laughs> fascinating. A real surprise. Give it a listen. Absolutely. Highly recommend it. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting mix of material, variety of styles, the constantly changing instrumentation for each track. And the result is it really holds your interest because I know a recorder usually from Baroque and uh, earlier mm. music recordings as part of an ensemble. And I thought, oh, geez, a whole album around the quarter. <laughs> this is going to be kind of chirpy and I'm going to be like pecking at the wood board <laughs> or something. I, but, I, I like the I like the woody sound that it makes though. Yeah. Always, that's always appealed to me. But yeah. she uses different instruments. She uses different instruments too, not just sounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah different instruments. And so she's got They're that. Different lengths. You get a, a variety of uh, timbres in there. And then as I said, overall, it's kind of light and easy to listen to because there's a lot of other than the ensemble pieces, there's a lot of duos and uh, relatively sparse arrangements. You don't want to overpower the uh, recorder as a kind of smaller toned instrument. Uh, so you can really listen into all the parts easily. And the recording is really great. It's clear, clean sounding, very present and an enjoyable listen. Much uh, more intriguing than I thought when I uh, started out on it. I actually enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, actually, I just found out now because I have the CD of this that uh, the back of the booklet actually lists all of the recorders used. Six, seven, looks like there are nine of them. So wow. the, the most used one seems to be a treble alto recorder that she uses on most of the tracks. Yeah, it would have been nice to have gone through them, but I guess I didn't want to nerd out too much. Anyway, we're moving on to the trumpet now. And uh, this is the last classical recording. It's all trumpet from here on yeah. out. This is a uh, recording by uh, Paul Mercolo on the trumpet. He's the principal trumpet in the Orchestre Symphonique de Montréal, which I remember Charles Dutois used to conduct back when I was younger. I don't know who conducts it now, actually. But on this particular album, we have the Russian National Orchestra conducted by Hans Graf. And we're also going to hear a bit of, bit of uh, J. Hyuk Cho on the piano in one, one piece. Excuse me. There are three concertos on this album. The connection between these three works is that they were all, they all have a connection with the trumpeter Timofey Dokshizer, who was born in Nizin in what is now Ukraine in 1921. And he died mm. in Vilnius, Lithuania in 2005. He was a soloist as well as the principal trumpeter with the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow during his lifetime. And uh, he's apparently a mover and shaker in the trumpet world. Anyway, the first piece is by Alexander Arutiunian, who lived from 1920 to 2012. He almost made it to 100. Hmm. This is his trumpet concerto from 1950, and uh, the cadenza played here is by Timofey Dokshizer. Arutiunian was Armenian. 
And this piece was a breakthrough for him. It was written for Ikaz Messiaen and premiered by Messiaen in 1950. It's a standard test piece at music conservatories and colleges now, apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, It's virtuosic, and much of its appeal lies in the unabashed melodicism of its content, which, with much recourse to folk and traditional music of Armenia. Dokshizer made the first recording of this work, so that's his connection to it, and brought the piece to international attention. And we're also going to hear his um, cadenza. This piece starts with a pretty intense uh, timpani rumble and a bright-toned, foreboding, harmonied trumpet fanfare. The trumpet line is indeed highly melodic, as the booklet notes said. At uh, 55 seconds, there's a gentle orchestral splash that changes the key for the end of the section. At a minute and 20 seconds, we hear a folk-like dance rhythm with a rather active trumpet theme. Uh, Fantastic sound on this recording, by the way. Uh, The orchestra's transparent and timpani register through the speakers with impact, which I always love. My neighbors don't, though. (laughs) Anyway, the trumpet sound itself is appealingly bright. If the neighbors don't like it, you know it's good. Uh, The trumpet sound itself is appealingly bright with just the right amount of room reverb on the recording. At 2 minutes and 41 seconds, the tempo dips into something more moonlit and hushed. Another folk-like theme, this time a song. The trumpet part is highly melodic, and by the 4-minute mark, the material sounds almost Spanish in its melodic contour and tone. I always wonder what what, uh, sort of modes Spain Mm. shares with Eastern Europe. Sometimes this sort of thing happens. At 5 minutes and 37 seconds, we get a new theme, more lively, and a bit mischievous in its withholding elements of the line. It soon gets more folk dance-like and boisterous. Uh, some great scale runs are made by the trumpet in this section, early in the sixth minute, again at six minutes and 49 seconds. At eight minutes and nine seconds, the overall tone quiets again, and we hear a quiet theme at eight minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, Mercolo has changed his tone here. There's now a mute on the trumpet, and the sensitive line is played with a fine legato. The melody here feels soulful in parts and heartfelt throughout. Eventually, solo orchestral instruments take on the melody as the trumpet continues. This section goes on for longer than the previous ones. Uh, We're gently taken out of this meditative mood at 12 minutes as the orchestra nudges us with a livelier rhythm and does a gradual crescendo while building up harmonic tension. We hear the opening material, I think. um, Anyway, it's familiar. At 12 minutes and 40 seconds, the trumpet line then starts shortening its line in a buildup of harmonic tension. At 13 minutes, 53 seconds, the trumpet gets its bright-toned, highly melodic and searching cadenza written by Doc Schieser. So listen to that. He gets a chance for some rapid phrase virtuosity from the 15th minute until the orchestra comes back in for the end of the piece at 15 minutes, 27 seconds. This work is instantly appealing, beautifully performed, and the recording is excellent too. All right, tracks two through four, a composer we recently heard, Mislav Weinberg, and we will be hearing more from him in the future too. This is his trumpet concerto in B-flat major, opus 94. And uh, Timofey Dokshiz's connection to this work was that he gave the premiere with the Moscow Philharmonic Orchestra and Kirill Kondrashin in Moscow in 1968. Shostakovich described it as a symphony for trumpet and orchestra. Hmm. Weinberg's and other composers' music is quoted in the finale, a technique which anticipates postmodernist and polystylistic practices that became a mainstay of Soviet music throughout the next quarter century. This is kind of an odd work, the way it moves. <laughs> the first movement is called Etudes, 
or studies, and it turns out that's a good uh, description of what mm. this is. It starts with the short scalar lines ripping out of the trumpet. The orchestra picks up the quick rising motif. Now, from there, the material continues with the trumpet introducing new motifs and the orchestra repeating them afterwards. It almost sounds like a music lesson in a way, yeah. you know, stylized as an orchestra work. It has the quality of some kind of music exercise, as the movement title implies. By the 2 minute 53 second mark, we hear the circusy theme in the trumpet that we heard in the first minute. Uh, this movement is pretty busy, and the material goes by pretty quickly, mixing up its various patterns. It's entertaining, upbeat rather light as far as content goes, which is sort of unusual for Weinberg, really, and recorded in gorgeous sound. There's something of the circus in the more upbeat moments, a quality a lot of music by Soviet composers shares, including Shostakovich. There's something about popular music of the 20th century, there's this kind of emptiness to it that classical musicians like to use in their music for various reasons, really. Just past the five-minute mark, I could swear that uh, the wavering line is a reference to the Rite of Spring. Uh, in fact, even the circusy music could be thought of as Stravinsky-inspired because um, there's a moment like that in the Rite of Spring as well. It sounds like there's a gunshot at the end just before the last tongue-in-cheek trumpet note. Second movement, Episodes. This has a grand Hollywood-style opening with the uh, feel of wide-open spaces and an epic story about to begin. There's some pretty harsh chords in the orchestra, softened by the attack of the wind and brass, and the uh, strings are playing the main material. A flute plays a lighter theme at a minute and 30 seconds, and we finally hear the trumpet at the two-minute mark. It plays a slower, more legato theme, at first imitating the flute's tone, uh, then moving off into its own natural timbre. That was a pretty neat effect, I thought. Mm -hmm. He kind of came in sounding like the flute and then kind of moved off into his trumpet timbre. It's lightly accompanied by gentle arpeggiated pattern on the harp and drawn out chords from the strings. The trumpet switches to a mute in the third minute, uh, which we're hearing clearly by 3 minutes and 40 seconds. The pattern suddenly stops, and a trudging rhythm begins at around the 4-minute mark. Uh, this episode dissipates, and the flute plays a light version of it. The muted trumpet plays countermelody to the flute. The texture gets thinner as light strings and light winds play wavering lines. The trumpet has a sort of fanfare, ta 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 ta, which kind of reminded me of uh, Mahler at the beginning of the Fifth Symphony. The only recognizable theme in the texture is the trumpet, the fanfare. Uh, the flute wind winds its way to the end of the movement, which connects to the next movement, which starts with the tolling of a bell. All right, so the third movement is called fanfares. It's connected and to the previous movement. And the notes say this movement is essentially an accompanied cadenza, and it's an interesting description. It has allusions to motifs by Mahler and Mendelssohn, then Rimsky, Korsakov, and Shostakovich. I couldn't pull any of these out except for the maybe the Mahler one. That ta 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 kind of rhythm, I think, is the Mahler. There's a tolling bell heard on occasion. A pretty spectacular timpani roll, sounding like thunder, imposes itself. There are more light fanfares from the trumpet, this time repeated by wood percussion, then snare drum. The trumpet is basically playing solo for the entire movement, with the orchestra only coming in to imitate or comment. It never accompanies. By 4 minutes and 20 seconds, the trumpet has started a dancing rhythm that a violin picks up and continues. I'm amazed at the presence of all the solo instruments from the orchestra on this recording, especially the harp, when it's heard alone. Uh, it's fantastic. 
Uh, this very interesting and rather odd movement is wound up by the trumpet with percussion and ended on a single accented chord. So it's an interesting piece and a very interesting movement, I thought. The, the form was rather unusual, mm -hmm. but I think interesting. All right, tracks five through eight are a work we've heard before, but not in this version. This is uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, a concerto number one, opus 35 for piano, trumpet, and strings. And we heard this on um, the, uh, I think it was the Hardenberger. No, it wasn't. There was an earlier one. I don't remember mm. but uh, who the trumpeter was. The piano had a large role in that work. This particular version has an expanded trumpet part by Timofey Dokshizer. So he's the connection here. This is from a 2009 transcription for trumpet and piano. And uh, Paul Merkelo, the soloist, added a bit of a trumpet part too. And he was assisted by Jay Hyuk Cho and Hans Graf, the conductor and the pianist on this recording. Jay Hyuk Cho is the pianist. With Shostakovich's endorsement, uh, Doc Schieser subsumed a fair portion of the piano part into the trumpet part, as well as elaborating the trumpet writing and adding cadenza-like passages for the trumpet. As a result, the work is closer to the double concerto mode from the Baroque era that Shostakovich may have originally intended. That's according to the notes. According to me, uh, this made the piece sound kind of unbalanced to my ear. Mm. I'll mention that as we go. Movement one, Allegro Moderato. The piano sound at the opening of this is rather lacking in resonance. So this is one thing that bothered me about this whole performance is the piano just doesn't sound well recorded on this otherwise well recorded album and well recorded piece. I don't feel like I'm getting much from the harmonics on the piano here. It sounds rather bony, and this version of the work is mainly the trumpet showcase. The trumpet sounds great, though. It's rather odd hearing this piece being so heavy on the trumpet side. I had to adjust to that. There's plenty of piano left to hear, though. Um, the thing is that the trumpet and the piano will often sort of respond to each other, and I feel like the trumpet picked up a lot of those lines, so you lose that some of the communication that happens between the trumpet and piano. The trumpet has to show a lot of agility in the fleet lines he's got in this movement. Merkelow delivers this beautifully. The movement comes across beautifully proportioned in this performance. Second movement, lento, a quiet rocking theme in the strings as a violin outlines the theme. The trumpet is heard at a minute and 17 seconds in, continuing the violin's theme. The accompaniment is transparent, very light, easy to hear every detail. In the second minute, we hear just the trumpet and piano with the piano accompanying and occasionally shadowing the trumpet's theme. The piano gets some time with the orchestra, but the trumpet is soon back, taking the lead with the piano shadowing and accompanying. There are some thunderous notes from the bass end of the piano that are well played, but the richness of the sound doesn't come up well on this recording. The entire album and the other instruments in this piece all sound fantastic. Only the piano is let down by the recording. His line is audible, though. At 4 minutes and 28 seconds, the trumpet is playing with the mute. And while this is no criticism, Merkelo, throughout the album, really only plays with those two tones, the mute and his gorgeous bright sound. <laughs> you know, I guess like an orchestra player would. Um, his phrasing is flexible enough to keep his playing interesting, though. I think he's really focusing on communicating through his shaping of the melody rather than through any changes that he uses in his tone. Uh, lovely ending with the trumpet's muted tone, by the way. Third movement, moderato. This minute and 30 second movement features arpeggiated material on the piano, which sounds better in its higher end, but once the bass comes in again, we're not getting much resonance. At 30 seconds, the orchestra and trumpet come in and build up tension, the bass playing a pulsing rhythm. The piano comes back in with arpeggiated material, this time with the strings providing a chord wash 
in accompaniment. And the fourth movement, Allegro con Brio, has a cadenza by Timofei Dokshizer, which I couldn't identify. I didn't hear a, a cadenza in this movement. I didn't know what, what it was. Any, anyone out there who wants to tell me when it happens, let me know. Write it right to us. The previous movement connects to this, which is more high speed. The trumpet takes the lead with a fanfare-like theme. He does a lot of fanfare playing in this movement. The piano's got a pretty exciting high speed part and more playing time here than I expected from the description of how this work was changed. This is taken at a thrilling tempo with the brakes occasionally applied as at a minute and 13 seconds for a new section that gradually speeds up again. The trumpet's rapid repeated notes in this movement are really impressive. At the 3 minute 10 second mark or so, the tempo slows and there's a more oom-pa-pa rhythm accompanying the trumpet in a slower, more legato-based, memorable theme. I'm wondering if this is the cadenza, actually. I'm not really sure. Hmm. The trumpet is accompanied throughout. Anyway, the strings, yeah, there, there's no place where the trumpet plays alone. That's part of the reason I couldn't tell what the cadenza was. Anyway, the strings speed this uh, theme up, and the piano comes in at high speed toward the 4 minutes and 30 second mark. The trumpet continues with high-speed fanfares, which lead to the end of the movement. Okay, so this is an interesting album all the way through. I thought the program got less interesting as it went, actually, as far as everything mm. went, with the opening Arutunian work being an appealing, exuberant piece that was as open-hearted as an American work. I mean, he may as you know, Americans tend to write works with this kind of open-heartedness. The Weinberg was a bit heavier, but still not a challenging listen. It was easier to listen to and had an interesting construction to it, starting fast, going to a slow movement, then to a movement that practically had the trumpet playing solo throughout. The Shostakovich was let down by the piano sound, the only complaint I have about the otherwise excellent recording quality. Something about the trumpet's added presence, despite there being still plenty of piano in it, left me rather perplexed due to my feeling that the piano part should have continued at certain parts, but that has nothing to do with Paul Mercolo's playing, which is excellent throughout. You can hear his quality as a principal trumpeter via his bright tone. He doesn't alter his tone for various sections of the piece like a lot of soloists would, but relies on his flexible melodic sense to keep the ear engaged. Uh, the first two pieces on this album are a real discovery. Yeah, I thought it's a really fine showcase for the yeah. trumpet works. The Aratuni is my favorite because it's uh, the mm. most melodic and lush. Yeah, mine too. I thought he played that really well, although probably yeah. only he and maybe other trumpet players like me uh, will know that yeah. uh, he kind of, uh, right at the beginning of the cadenza, that there's one note that I'm sure kills him every time he listens to it. There's a little splat <laughs> of the one note. But, you I didn't know, even notice it. Yeah, uh, you won't notice it probably. Now that you told me about it, I'm going to notice it all the time too. Just because, you know, the overall performance is uh, really, really good. And uh, I really like that piece. It's got great harmonies in it. It, it almost has a little sense of jazziness in the mm. harmonic movement. And it's a really, really great piece, I think. What else can I say? The Weinberg is playful and quite interesting. <laughs> I was entertained by yeah. it. Uh, it's not really an yeah. emotionally moving piece, but it does keep you uh, engaged with all the interesting things that are happening. And the Shostakovich, I mean, his writing is very mercurial anyway. So there's all kinds of rhythmic things happening. And as you say, th this arrangement here is quite different from what I've 
remember yeah. from hearing it the last time I heard it. So the balance right. is a little bit um, curious, but uh, it certainly keeps things moving and changing to uh, keep you in there. And the trumpet technique in there is uh, really quite astounding. And overall, uh, other than, as you say, the, the piano tone on uh, the last work, uh, overall, the recording is very lush and warm sounding, uh, but still keeps enough detail and certainly captures the wonderful quality of his trumpet tone. And that's the most important thing for this work. So Aratuni is pretty well known for trumpet players, but Weinberg maybe not so much. So I, I think all trumpet players should uh, take a listen to this. Yeah, I also I should mention that um, no complaints about uh, Jay Hyuk Cho's uh, piano playing on the Shostakovich either. He's he's very fine yeah. in his performance. It's just that the, re- the recording quality just let him down, I feel like. That's the only yeah. thing that I'm complaining about. The other thing, too, was there's not a lot of you know material composed for the trumpet uh, compared to other instruments. Yeah, but we're going to be hearing more of it coming soon. I got two two new trumpet concerto albums coming out. And yet there was more, you know, back when I was uh, trying to find classical works to play back in my yeah. high school and university days. It, it was hard to find other works for a trumpet because they're more obscure. And it was really hard to right. find recordings of them. You right. just uh, couldn't Especially find them. Especially back your, then when you yeah. just had to like... You're not going to hear them the on the radio and the local library didn't have yeah. them. So it was much harder. But I'm really glad now that with streaming, we can get access to all these recordings and find new pieces still yet you know, discovered. It's great for uh, you know, musicians. And back then, too, like anything written past like the World War II wasn't being performed. It was no. all like really old music. You yeah, know? Yeah. There was a repertoire, and that's what everybody played. But that changed Haydn, in the 80s and Hummel. Still going. The cutting thing was uh, Hindemith at that time. Right, Hindemith. You never hear Hindemith anymore. It's really funny. I played Hindemith for my audition for music school. So. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I would have rather have done the Aratunium, but I didn't come across that until later. You know, it's a great piece. Uh, that's a great piece. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're in trumpet mode now. We're going to continue on to the jazz side of things in and a big I've, way. Coming I've up. got three fabulous yeah. recordings for you. Really excited about all of these trumpet recordings, and we're going to start out with a trumpet player that should be much uh, better known all around the world. And uh, I've tried to introduce him to a lot of my American trumpet playing friends. That's the great Italian trumpeter Fabrizio Bosso. Oh, who incidentally has a really fantastic Christmas album too. You should a check out. Christmas album. He has a real good body yeah. of work. Now I started to listen to him years ago when he was a part of the uh, High Five Quintet, great Italian oh, wow. group. And I had a lot of recordings uh, and always had a lot of playful takes on uh, things, but with great level of musicianship. But uh, Basso hasn't really released an album recently of his own. He's been in a lot of collaboration recordings, which seems to me to be the nature of Italian jazz. There's a lot of people getting together, (laughs) playing on each other's albums and uh, doing a lot of uh, collaboration. But I've been waiting for him to come out with something uh, new on his own. And he's come out with this one. And the uh, theme is uh, really interesting. He's got a new recording on WM Italy. It's called We Wonder. And that wonder Mm. is none other than Stevie Wonder. Yeah. These are all Stevie Wonder compositions. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we Gen X type of people grew up with this music. It's permanently in our brains. In the 1970s is what you heard it all the time. He's a great pop song writer, you know, soulful, great melodies, but also good harmonies and structures to his songs. 
And uh, so they just stick in your head. And, you know, we grew up with these. So we're going to get some uh, interesting takes on Stevie Wonder tunes here. So Fabrizio Basso on trumpet, Julian Oliver Mazzariello on piano, Jacopo Ferrazza, double bass, Nicola Angelucci, drums, and what really makes uh, a little extra shine to this album, Nico Gori on clarinet. Right. Yeah. And sax too, I should say. You should be Italian with that pronunciation. You sound great. Oh, I've been listening <laughs> to you. <laughs> oh, there you go. We're going to start out with I Wish. Now, this was released originally on the 1976 as the uh, lead single from Songs in the Key of Life, which was one of his biggest albums. Oh, yes. Right? And uh, so here, mm. it's going to start out with uh, Angelucci whipping it up uh, with an eight-bar intro on the drums here. Basso plays the melody puckishly here with light articulation, and Mazzariello adds some very tasty piano fills in there. Now, the original of this tune was really quite funky, as in funk funky, <laughs> but here they give it a, yeah. a different kind of funky feel. It's more of a that kind of hard bop funky, you know, think like Lee Morgan uh, in the tunes from, you know, the hard bop era. Uh, after the chorus, they bring it down, build it up over ringing bass notes into a really rollicking solo from Mazzarillo, and it gets swinging harder with the cymbal push from Angelucci. Basso solos next, playfully, getting some fast flutters up in the high register, and he ties it right back into the melody for another run through. They break up the chorus for some final drum breaks from uh, Angelucci, and bring it right up to the end. And it's a fun start to this album of yeah. Wondrous Music. Now we're going to go a little bit uh, more modern in Stevie Wonder's catalog, A Moon Blue, which is from 2005's A Time to Love. Here, I don't uh, know this tune. I had to yeah, look it up. Well, you know, new century mm. here. Uh, Mozzarello switches to a Rhodes on this one for the intro. Uh, we get a syncopated bass line that comes in from Ferrazza. It's basically a ballad, but it, it gets some snap in it from uh, the bass here. Uh, also takes the melody lyrically over a nice drum brush hits on the drums. Mozzarello plays a reserved solo on Rhodes with nice light articulation and springy little rhythmic figures in there. Basso comes in for backing lines and a fluffy solo uh, to start out, but then he squeezes up high, uh, works through some double-time lines into a soft ending, and they all end up on a kind of unresolved chord. We're going to get one of Wonder's biggest hits, track three, My Chérie Amour, and this is from yeah. 1969, album of the same title. On the single, the B-side was uh, I Don't Know Why, if you happen to have that 45 in your parents' collection or something. Yeah. Anyway, Mazzarello is back on acoustic piano here with some chiming chords to start it out over nice brushwork from Angelucci. Fraza has ringing acoustic bass notes here. To start it out, Nico Gori and Basso trade off the initial vocalization lines, you know, la, da, 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 da. Yeah. So they pass those back and forth on uh, clarinet and trumpet, and then they continue to swap phrases uh, before joining together in unison and then splitting into harmony on the melody. And that's a fine way to go. By the way, the original of this tune is 4-4. Four, four. You know, it's got this kind of easy beat and it's got a backbeat feel, not like a bass drum backbeat, but like a snare. So it's like, if you listen to that, but listen to this version, they give it a 6-8 rhythm here. 
which is kind of cool because mm. it stretches out the you know feel of the melody phrases and it calms it down a bit which is kind of a cool adaptation uh, they continue on soloing weaving lines together both clarinet and trumpet things get more animated and then uh, angelucci gives them more push to an exuberant climax they really bubble this up they bring it back down softly for a restart at those vocalization lines again and take another run through the melody there's a lot of nice cymbal work by angelucci going on behind there and then they break out into a jam over a vamping groove and getting a little more daring harmonically uh, at the end here outside the chords a bit things come down and end up with just a long held note from the two wind instruments so i thought it was an interesting and fun departure and taking a little leeway on a melody that everyone knows four is another star this is also from 1976's songs in the key of life and with the original one if you listen to it it had that kind of latin disco feel that was going on at the time you know uh, kind of a latin bass and that and that it sounds very disco but here uh, they give it a kind of slow latin beat and they do a modal treatment uh, with kind of nice ringing chords on piano for an eight bar intro it really changes the atmosphere uh, ferrata is on electric bass here with cool descending lines as Gordy switches to tenor sax for this tune and takes the melody together with basso. Now this tune is in uh, A-A-B-B-A form and they switch up to swing feel on the B sections. So it gives it a little bit of uh, interesting variety. Basso takes the first uh, and then Gordy the next uh, sections there for the B. Uh, Mozzarella gets a solo first with rhythmic and percussive lines, changes to swing nicely and back again during the course of the solo. They keep those change-ups in the solo there. Basso comes ripping out next for a solo. He gets more boppy over the swing section with double-time lines, goes through the final straight section, getting way up high, and then adding some fun flutter-tonguing in there too. Gordy's more laid back in his solo here, but he gets some higher wails in the final strain. Then return to the melody, switching off horns over the swing section, then vamping out on the minor chords of the straight beat uh, for Angelucci to get some drumming in. There's a big horn finish for Basso to scream out the final notes with a little help from Gordi as well. Right in the middle of this uh, whole recording here, track five, we're going to get a non-Stevie Wonder tune. This is actually an original by Basso and Mozzarello called We Wonder, the title track. And this has got a pretty ringing piano intro from Mazzurello and a lyrical melody from Basso over cymbal textures. There's a light eight beat kind of feel to it, marked out on cymbals, good snare work as well. Mozzarello's first on piano for soloing, it's rhythmic and ringing. And then Basso comes in soaring high on his solo, rhythmically pushing phrases uh, and then some speedy double time lines before bringing things back softly into the melody. Then Basso gets some final cries and trades a few last thoughts uh, with Mozzarello as it fades away. Track six is Visions, and this is from the 1973 album Inner Visions. That's one word. Now, the original had an interesting instrumentation. It's like a really fluid electric guitar acoustic guitars and a kind of ringing acoustic bass in the intro and here they give it a new twist with kind of a uh, an intro of left hand piano and bass together over a mix of uh, drumming then Basso takes the melody interestingly using a plunger mute which he likes to do uh -huh. uh, you know he's one of the 
few kind of uh, modern players who uses uh, plunger mute playfully a lot on his recordings. There's a great uh, high five, I forget which one it is, but they do a uh, version of uh, Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. And he uses this really nasty plunger mute solo on that. <laughs> I'll have to seek that one out. And uh, it's pretty cool. But uh, he uses plunger mute here. They mix up the feel from a heavy and straight beat to swing as they go along. They keep it kind of to a plodding swing for basso solo. And he hams it up with the plunger mute, having a good time, squeezing out notes, spitting out some double-tonguing phrases uh, too. Furata gets a bass solo next. He mixes bouncy ideas with also faster lines. And then Bosso swings back in with the melody for a run without plunger. And Mozzarella falls with a piano solo with a punctuated high register figures and rhythmic chords taking it to the end. We're going to get a tune that probably everyone knows, uh, Overjoyed from 1985's album In Square Circle. This one's got back onto the roads uh, for the beginning, bringing high piano sounds. And uh, I think Ferrazza's got a fretless bass here, surprisingly, but taking the first round of the melody on bass. Uh, so that's kind of a cool switch. Apostle gets a run next with a warm and lyrical tone, uh, adding a few tasteful ornaments on the melody. And he continues into a lyrical solo, exchanging and intertwining with lines from Mozzarella, uh, also tying into another round of the melody. Then Ferrazza gets some more fretless fun with a really liquid solo uh, lines uh, over more ringing roads. And Basso returns for a little flourish with the final strain. Now, another tune everyone should know, uh, Sir Duke, also from uh, yeah. Songs in the Key of Life. Well, they take this one at a blazing tempo <laughs> right from the sure uh, opening <laughs> famous horn riffs. Uh, over a really nice uh, brush drum fills from Angelucci. Uh, Gordy's back on clarinet, and the bass also joins in unison on the horn lines here. So you get uh, you know three instruments doing that, and then before he uh, tears off for some frantic uh, fast walking bass, a uh, piano takes the main melody line from the vocal original vocals, and then the horns do the answer line uh, riffs with really fun tight articulation because it's at this uh, tempo. The horn soli section is also with bass and it's really cooking it's a lot faster than the original. And Gory flies out of that uh, little horn soli section with a really fast and fluid clarinet solo. Get some great edgy notes in along the way. So this is a, the highlight for clarinet on the recording. Then Basso follows with a speedy solo of his own. And this one really shows off what he can do. He's a real speedy solo. Intervals, amazing articulation variety, all at a breakneck pace. Angelucci gets a drum solo, the horns coming in on the answer lines and back to the opening riff into the piano melody. Uh, once more through the horns solely to take it out. And whoosh, it's a really ripping ride uh, yeah. through this tune, a lot of fun. Then we're gonna end up with uh, Isn't She Lovely? This is also from uh, Songs in the Key of Life. But uh, this is like a, a little short, uh, impressionistic version clucking in at less than two like a minutes. a big flourish, really. Yeah. yeah. So Basso has some like uh, studio electronic echo on his phrases. That comes in over a rubato wash of roads, fretless bass, drumming. And he's really picking up uh, little snippets of the melody that you'll recognize. Uh, half valve slides into soaring notes. A final rising line to a climax, although they do work through the chord progression, so you'll be able to follow that along. And it fades away over some 
drum toms. So it's just a short and impressionistic little version of this. Yeah, it's such a great song, though. That it kind of makes you wish they had done like a full version <laughs> yeah. of it, you know? Yeah, but it kind of does. Anyway. By the way, cool, we had heard you know. um, Pat Bianchi recently right. with a, a Stevie Wonder tribute. So his his songs really, you know, right. they invite, um, you know, jazz musicians to really take them as right. uh, vehicles to have fun with. Anyway, there you have it. It's fun and inventive versions of Stevie Wonder tunes that almost everyone should know and a fitting original in the middle. The arrangements are clever. They have nice surprises, like the bass getting the melody uh, there on fretless. And uh, Basso is always technically impressive, and he shows off both his lyrical side and his speedy chops here. Uh, good fun with the plunger mute, too. And uh, Gory's clarinet is fabulous on this recording, adding a nice variety, uh, also on tenor sax as well. It would be impossible not to like this recording. <laughs> You'd have to be... Mm, yeah dead or tone deaf or something anyway you should listen to it <laughs> and also tell your friends to listen to it and everyone should listen to fabrizio Bossa. yeah i'm apparently uh i'm apparently still alive because i listened to this album all week it was really a great <laughs> pleasure i mean as if uh, stevie wonder's great tunes weren't enough you got fabrizio Bossa's uh highly articulated and smooth tone and he man manipulates it in many ways also the arrangements had all these great unexpected rhythm changes and yeah. textural changes like from new orleans brassiness to swing to ballad all on a single track sometimes it was really mm. cool i thought the piano on the album could have been further forward but otherwise it sounded great or maybe the drums further back to accommodate the piano um he's the only guy that sounded recessed in the in the mix but uh otherwise it's a great sounding recording too i actually ordered the cd of this album Oh, they still you? haven't shipped it. I think I ordered oh. it a month ago. <laughs> I'm still waiting for them to ship. Because it's coming from Italy, and Italy, nothing works there. I don't know what it is. <laughs> anyway, but uh, still waiting for it. I loved it. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. If you like jazz, I mean, you absolutely have to hear this. Basso's a great player, and he should be world famous. He's really yeah. great. Well, you know, he was in Japan a couple of years ago, and our friend in Milan, Nathan, mm. was... Uh, saw him, I believe, when he was in Milan, and he, I told him, tell Fabrizio when he comes to Japan, he's got to play in Kansai, because I think he was, I think he was in like Kyushu or something, and then he went to Tokyo, but he oh, bypassed yeah. Osaka altogether. So yeah. uh, next time, I hope he uh, comes around, because I'll definitely go out to see him. Yeah, if we have to go up to Tokyo, that ticket price goes up $300. It does. <laughs> because we have to get on, we have to take a round trip on the bullet train. Yesterday, I yeah. was uh, in the studio, practicing with my band mates and uh the subject came up that uh sting is coming to japan huh guess how much the tickets are how much ichiban kyusen ichiban kyusen that's 190 it's even less than that now maybe yeah, 160 for our dollars wallets or that's uh, 190 dollars yeah. so i don't think i'll be going yeah. to see sting at and, that and, price and where is he is he in osaka uh i'm not sure the venue yeah but once I heard the price... Because if, if he's in Tokyo, you could yeah. add plus $300 <laughs> yeah, yeah. just to get there I and don't back. Think so. Yeah, I think they're um, yeah. banking on that Japan is finally opening up and uh, people will pay anything to go to a concert. But no, I'm not going to pay Yeah, this much. is ridiculous. Even baseball game. I don't know about Japan because I haven't been to a baseball game here. But in the U.S., like, you know, baseball tickets are over $100 now. Baseball tickets should be $20, as should concert tickets. Yeah. Well, geez, the yeah. baseball players make a lot more money than musicians do, though, you know. Well, it depends. I guess it depends who it is, but yeah. Yeah. All right, anyway. enough uh, <laughs> Enough musical economics. Let's get on to the next trumpet yeah. recording. And this is another uh, great one here. Eric Jacobson on Origin Records 
discover. Jacobson uh, majored in music at the University of Wisconsin, graduated there in 1997, and uh, since then, He's uh, performed with a lot of well-known names in jazz. Phil Woods, Benny Golson, Brian Lynch, Tito Puente Jr., Eric Bennett. And he's starting to make a big name for himself just recently, 2021, toward the East Coast with his own group. And uh, he's got some world-class musicians with him on this date, including one of our favorite pianists, Bruce Barth, who's just outstanding mm. on this recording. Also here, we've got uh, Jeff Bradfield, tenor sax, George Flutas, drums, and Dennis Carroll on bass. So we've got a lot of original compositions, a couple other tunes, standards, and compositions by other famous trumpet players. And uh, this is real meat and potatoes jazz here and great trumpet playing. Uh, so let's dive in with the first track, New Combinations. This one starts with an eight-bar intro from the trio with rhythmic chords from Bruce Barth. Uh, Jacobson and Bradfield take the boppy and spirited melody together, uh, both in unison and break off into some harmony. It's basically a 32-bar form, but there's an extra six bars of kind of vamping on the end of it to build the tension, although the solos will follow the 32-bar form, and Jacobson comes out first. Uh, his style, as you'll notice, when you start listening to this solo is firmly in the hard bop tradition, nicely swinging our forward motion. He builds up and releases tension in his uh, melodic phrases really well over two choruses. And Bradfield's up next. He has a really soft tenor tone, kind of legato phrasing, but he swings hard, uh, some fast double time licks peppered in. And then Barth follows up with a very animated solo, tricky rhythmic figures and a driving left hand. Uh, they repeat the melody and extend the vamping section for a flutist to get some drum work in around the kit. Then the horns return and end it with a little harmonic surprise, a really nice energetic start. Another original tune for track two, Discover. That's the title track on this recording. This one's a medium mm -hmm. tempo ballad with a light Latin beat. Uh, Barth gives a chiming eight bar intro over some ringing bass tones from Carol. And Jacobson comes in on the melody, shows off a more lyrical side here. Bradfield joins in for some harmony and counter lines. It's a 16-bar melody played twice with intriguing kind of lazily falling notes in the 13th bar. It's kind of a nice little mm -hmm. effect. Uh, Jacobson solos first, starting delicately with nicely spaced out phrases with a very warm tone. He works up to some higher phrases nice variety of articulation, uh, some harder attacks, and then he gets rhythmic and includes some double-time phrases as the trio kicks in the groove, bringing it to a climax. He brings it all back down softly for a nice arc to his solo. Uh, Bradfield starts his solo softly as well, but he can play really well in the upper register with control, even when he's soft. Uh, I noticed that about his playing. Uh, he mixes up his articulation and rhythmic phrases for also a good climax over some nice drum work from Flutus. Barth is next, and then with some clear right-hand lines, Showing off, he's just got a great touch on piano on all of his uh, recordings. Uh, also mixed in with some punchy chords, rhythmic and chiming ideas. He's just really tasty pianist. Uh, there's a little eight-bar interlude with some ringing bass from Carol before they go through the melody again with a soft landing to finish it. We're going to get a uh, standard tune, uh, Fregos, Baker, Gaspare, I Hear a Rhapsody. 
Barth takes an eight-bar solo piano intro on this with a great swing, and then Jacobson comes in on the melody with bass and drums joining in. This one's an AABA form tune, and Bradfield takes over on sax on the B section of the melody. Jacobson finishes it up into a solo break and a rhythmically playful start. Uh, he builds intensity as he goes along. He finds some bluesy spots, keeps it really swinging. Bradfield's also smooth in his solo, but he digs down low, gets up high too, making his phrases very snappy. Barth, in his solo, alternates between really swinging hard and then exploring kind of rhythmically adventurous ideas that might be dangerous in uh, a lesser <laughs> pianist's hands. You feel like, whoa, <laughs> and then he you know, brings He's, he's a remarkable in. pianist yeah, in really general. Good. I've always really admired him. Bruce Barth. Yeah. They go through the melody again here, and then they kind of go on to this kind of coda for Jacobson to blow on some more playful solo ideas over. Uh, it ramps up rhythmically to a nice tight ending and a final trumpet phrase. Track four, another original, The Unknown. This one's a, a medium slow ballad with an eight-bar rhythm trio intro, uh, some rhythmic piano from Barth that starts it out. Uh, Jacobson comes in on the melody, playing lyrically and with some kind of fluffy trills in there too. Then Bradfield joins in on the repeat of the phrase. This is an AABA form with more of a driving swing feel on the B section. Barth solos with another rhythmically interesting solo and a great sense of touch. And then Jacobson's next with a very cool lazy start, spaces things out before he squeezes out some higher tones and cool double time lines. This is a really great restrained style of playing. I think I hear a lot of Blue Mitchell in his phrasing, which makes sense when we get to the next tune, a Blue Mitchell tune. Barth drops out uh, for the start of uh, Bradfield's solo. Things get a, a bit sparse before building up again with a nice push from Carol's bass. And then they mix things up uh, with the rhythms playfully. Uh, they take it through the melody once again, ending on that nice soft trill. Uh, track five is uh, the Blue Mitchell tune, Sir John. This is from a uh, very famous recording, 1960s Big Six. And Blue Mitchell was uh, one of my favorite trumpet players, a name that gets passed over because he wasn't necessarily um, an innovator in any way in jazz. He was just a really great player with a unique personal style. Uh, he used a lot of little trademark licks. So he would use a Lydian scale a lot. All of his recordings are really great. Uh, so it's nice to hear uh, someone uh, doing one of his tunes. This is just a fun, rollicking 12-bar blues. Barth and the rhythm section take a round with it to start. Uh, Jacobson comes in on the melody, and he takes two rounds for himself. Bradfield set out on the melody, but uh, he gets a solo first. Uh, then he swings hard. Avoiding, interestingly, bluesy scale ideas, working around the harmonies for a few choruses, and he saves up the bluesy ideas for his ending. And Jacobson's next. Uh, he's going to get bluesy straight away, using good repetition of ideas to build up some tension. He mixes it up with some shorter articulation, some outside harmonic ideas, uh, and tricky rhythmic, kind of Woody Shaw-like licks on this tune for a cool solo more modern than uh, Blue Mitchell would have done. Barth is next with some cool interval ideas and more rhythmic play uh, with choppy chords. And then Jacobson takes it out with a couple more runs around the melody and a trill to end it. We're going to get another great trumpet player, one of the greatest, Dizzy Gillespie's Con Alma. And this has got a light and dreamy intro from the trio, soft piano from Barth, 
Jacobson takes the melody with a nice vibrato here in his tone. I liked that. Bradfield joins in with some harmony on the repeat, takes the B section of the melody on his own. And Jacobson finishes it up with one more A section, and then Bradfield's up for a solo. He's rhythmically free and floating here before getting into uh, more tight licks with all soft phrasing. Jacobson starts with repeated notes and soft articulation in his solo, and then he builds up kind of an exciting solo here with anticipation building spaces, snappy double time lines. Next, Barth has a delicate touch in his solo, nice tumbling rhythmic phrases in his lines. And they take it around the melody once more with a final slowdown to a trill and some nice little tinkles on the piano from Barth to finish it out. Back to the originals for track seven, One Way. This is a really funky hard bop modal tune. Uh, there's an eight bar intro with Carol digging in on the bass and some percussive chords from Barth. The horns take the melody, which has some cool staccato notes. It takes you back to that kind of 60s hard bop era classic tunes, Freddie Hubbard and the like. It's an AAB form, 24 bars, with the first cool like modal change in the fifth bar that sort of just shifts you there. Bradfield solos first, free and fluttering, reaching up into the higher register, builds some nice harmonic tension. Then Jacobson follows with a powerful solo here, uh, weaving a nicely structured kind of solo structure across the chord changes. His ending is cool. Uh, he ends on this very dissonant note over what's happening in the, the chord that resolves naturally when the next mode shift happens. A uh, nice little touch. Uh, and Barth pounds out some chords uh, to get going on his solo. Uh, then clear high right-handed notes, a lot of digging in with both hands uh, later on, and there's a final hard bop through the melody to wrap it up. Just a cool classic sounding tune. We're going to end it up with an old standard, Robinson and Hill's Old Folks, and uh, this is a very pretty intro from Barth, and then Jacobson joins in lyrically on this rubato melody, and it's just the two of them. It's a duo piece. They phrase it perfectly together, really nice synergy. Barth continues on uh, solo for the B section of the melody, and then Jacobson returns to finish it up, continuing on to solo, which he builds up with rising and soaring phrases, double-time licks, sassy half-valve notes. Barth digs in into the rhythm, pushes him along underneath to a bluesy finish, and then Barth gets to show off more of that great touch and rhythmic sense with uh, really digging in solo. And Jacobson comes back for some high-energy licks before taking it down tender for a final lyrical melody statement and a great meandering cadenza with a real final tasty flourish from Barth. And there you have it. I thought Jacobson, he has a very commanding, authoritative trumpet presence, a very big, warm sound. He's steeped in the jazz trumpet tradition. As I mentioned, I think you can hear some Blue Mitchell all the way up through Woody Shaw ideas and his playing. But he's got an individual style of his own. Particularly, I like his phrasing, the use of space and mixing up of articulation. And the way he structures solos to real climaxes is very mature. We get fresh takes and arrangements on old tunes, standards, and the two from Trumpet Greats, Blue Mitchell and Dizzy Gillespie, plus Jacobson's originals pull you in right away. There are no strange meters or tricks up the sleeve on this recording. It's just great playing uh, from all the musicians, uh, especially Jacobson and Barth. Highly recommended to all trumpet lovers. Yeah, I also want to 
pull out the uh, the sax player on this. I really liked his uh, breathy tone oh, yeah. and laid back approach. He wasn't as bright as the you know as the Trump mm. was more upfront. I thought, but I kind of liked his sort of what, what's the word I want. He's he's a bit uh, he, he doesn't really stand out as much. But I yeah. my ear was kind of drawn to him a lot. Nice phrasing without the the kind of rough edge on the tenor. It's more of a, right. a soft sounding sax yeah. player. Yeah. Yeah, he was restrained, and mm -hmm. I, I, th I think I really appreciate that. It was it was sort of a contrast to what we were getting from uh, Jacobson on the album, so I thought it was a nice right. approach. Yeah, Barth's playing, of course, I love too. And yeah, I, I just generally liked this. Um, now, after hearing you talk about it, though, I think I might have to hear it again. <laughs> I, might, I might have to go for this one now. Yeah, I think if I was too busy listening to Fabrizio Boss all week, so I should, oh. probably should have listened to this one a bit more too. But yeah, it sounded. I wrote favorable things about it. I really liked it, but now i got to go back it's just right in that pocket of you know the jazz tradition which yeah. is what i like about it and just great playing all around that was really the yeah. uh I, I caught that right away like everybody on this record is really really good well yeah. the bass playing too was it was well recorded it was really nice and upfront and big mm -hmm. i really like yeah. that as well about this record all right and we're gonna have uh you know a little latin in the mix for the last release it's always good latin. to have that what variety we have this week in uh trumpet playing i'm, yeah. I'm still really excited this is Tito Carrillo's Urban Essence on Origin Records. Carrillo's originally from uh, Austin, Texas, but he says he was raised musically in Chicago and uh, drawn to the kind of melting pot of that place. And he tries to capture that kind of uh, spirit and energy of city life in this recording. And he does that pretty well, I think. Now, these two previous recordings the Bosso and Jacobson were pretty easy to put into words you know I knew those Stevie Wonder <laughs> tunes I could figure out what they're doing different with meters and arrangements and Jacobson as I said all full of elements that I could describe easily because that was the music that I you know learned to play on trumpet now here uh, Curios yeah. got me stumped with a lot of tricky stuff rhythmically in his arrangements. It's pretty yeah. hard to describe uh, these tunes but I'm going to do my best to get through it here <laughs> So we've got Curio on trumpet and flugelhorn. Troy Roberts putting in an impressive building performance through this recording on saxophones. More on that later. Ben Lewis, a pianist uh, who I want to hear more of after this recording too. Clark Summers on bass. Jay Sawyer on drums. And adding to that Latin element, Victor Gonzalez on congas here. Uh, mostly we've got all originals. Uh, one tune with a different uh, composer we'll get to uh, as we go along. So this starts out with uh, Momentum, track one. This begins with an interesting Latin groove with conga. Uh, listen to the syncopated bass and left-hand piano lines. I have no idea how they wrote the meter for this <laughs> tune, or you could try to count it out. What I get is four beats, five beats, and then two beats for a total of 11 you know, kind of beats, and I don't know if that's a measure or a phrase or how it was notated. I believe that two beats is what gives it that momentum uh, that pushes it on. Is it 11-4? I have no idea. Anyway, after four rounds of that kind of phrasing uh, with the rhythm section, the trumpet and sax come in in unison on the melody phrase and then split with the sax uh, dancing around under the trumpet. There's a contrasting softer and more lyrical strain for a sort of B section, then a repeat of the A section, and then another more lyrical strain with exchanges between sax and trumpet that goes into a more animated finish. Uh, they go around the groove a couple more times, 
from the opening, and then Lewis is up for a piano solo. He has great rhythmic intensity here. Tumbling phrases, ringing chords, very cool. Creo is up next with a really agile solo that also locks in over the groove and uh, reaches uh, a bit into ideas. Uh, the percussion picks up the groove as Roberts follows on a tenor solo, a very intense one, uh, reaching some high cries with edgy tone. Uh, they take it back through this tricky melody once again up to a big finish. So uh, exciting arrangement. Uh, lots of complex uh, rhythmic things going on through all these arrangements. Kind of hard to uh, uh, verbalize here. Track two, Fire and Ice. And this one starts out with a rhythmic repeating piano riffs that go on, joined by bass, drums, percussion. There's some cool bass and left-hand piano lines that come in underneath. And then the horns sneak in, building up to some syncopated hits over drum fills. The main horn melody is smooth and snaking with trumpet and sax in unison. Then the next strain is more animated with some chirpy sax articulation under the trumpet. Uh, as the meter changes up, it alternates between a four beat and then three beat bar. Uh, then it goes on to another section of lyrical lines into a final series of syncopated hits. A Creo comes out of that with a very fluffy toned solo. I think he's on flugelhorn here. He's got some great agility on fast lines, tricky rhythmic phrases. Things come down for a tenor solo then uh, that starts with really flowing lines from Roberts. He turns more rhythmic and clipped, then he digs down low in a creative solo. Summers is up for a bass solo next and he starts soft, but he gets more rhythmic bite as he goes along. And then they get into a 7-4 vamp. I guess that's that 4 and 3 idea that comes back for some busy drum and conga work from Sawyer and Gonzalez together. The horns come in to build it up and continue on to the melody section, uh, bringing the syncopated hits uh, to a softer finish. Track 3, Bliss Point. I like that title. This is a slower tune with five, a 5-4 five meter. There's an 8-bar intro from the trio. Uh, the conga sits out here. The horns take the softly flowing melody as uplifting and then descending lines, but it seems to change to 6-4 in the middle for about four bars along the way. This whole record's mm. got to give you a counting uh, workout. Uh, Creo is up first again for another lyrical and lovely toned solo. Again, sounds like flugelhorn on this one. Lewis is up next on piano, ringing high register tones that float around the rhythms in his own sort of space. He's sort of flowing around the, the rhythmic feels here. Uh, the horns return with the fluid melody again, and then Creo gets a little more space to solo on with some exchanges from Roberts as it fades out. Track four is the title track, Urban Essence. This one starts with a rhythmically free wash of percussion, bass, and piano as the horns work modal lines into high cries uh, before settling down. Uh, Roberts is on soprano sax on this tune. There's a pause, and then Carrillo begins a repeated rhythmic phrase uh, that moves around uh, harmonically with the same rhythm. Uh, Roberts joins him, and the bass adds a funky counterline. Drums and conga make a groove, then the horns drop out for some rhythmic piano injections. The horns come in again with a tricky theme that gets broken up with more rhythmic piano. This is really tricky, full of surprises, uh, cool chasing bass line and spots. Uh, the horn line ends with an upward glissando, Curio sneaks back in with a little kind of lip squeak from that gliss to start his solo. Uh, he's got building, rising rhythmic phrases, a little bit of flutter tonguing. Uh, it gets a little bit outside with harmonic ideas. 
Lewis follows with a rhythmic piano solo. It's really exploring lots of outside harmonies and getting quite percussive. And Summers is next with a bass solo here that really rings out in the high register. Roberts falls on soprano sax, uh, starting with repeated note ideas, then he gets more serpentine, then more rhythmic and bluesy over the hard-driving Latin groove that gets really pumping below him. Gonzalez gets to hammer out on the congas for a bit over some grooving by Lewis, and the horns add in backing lines into a strain of melody to the end, and they finish it off with a final whoop, upward gliss to cut it off. Track six is Crazy Stupid Fine. <laughs> and five is the <laughs> bass intro to Crazy Stupid Fine. Uh, so the bass intro is a cool little jam from Summers. It's it got a bluesy infusion of ideas and a few pauses that create anticipation. Uh, and he ends it up with some kind of open bass harmony chords there like bass power chords. Uh, then he starts off the main tune with a super funky ostinato bass line. Piano and drums, conga join in to lay down this groove. Uh, the horns come in with this bluesy 24-bar theme that has a cool unexpected harmonic twist in the last four bars. Uh, Curio gets a solo spot uh, the first time and Roberts on the repeat of that 24-bar spot. Curio solos first, lots of double-time lines, very cool harmonic navigation through and around the chords. Uh, he gets to a long high note and a bluesy finish. Uh, Roberts starts silky and then mixes more clippy and edgy ideas with blazing lines. Lewis follows on piano, mixing it up with interesting rhythmic ideas and a machine gun speed repeated note in the middle of the solo. Some other mm -hmm. surprises in his playing too. And they take it through the melody again. Curio and Roberts get time for more solo exchanges, interplay, and final riffing to the end. Now the next two tracks, pay attention uh, if you haven't listened to it yet because uh, on streaming, uh, Spotify and Deezer anyway where I checked it, these are reversed to the listing on Bandcamp. I couldn't oh, wow. find the actual cover backside of the CD. So I'm not sure yeah, how as, it is. As we saw with the Brian Charette record, yeah. the CD is often the one that gets yeah. it wrong. You never know. So I, I would guess Deezer's right. Mm. Yeah, and in jazz, you don't know because there are no words, you know, so you can't right. really tell. But I'm, I'm pretty sure this is Although, this matches the content here uh, because of the sort of uh, Latin motif uh, with track seven. And, uh, and the crackling record sound at the yeah. beginning of this next track. Yeah. This is Puerto Rico. That's poor. That's P -O -O a great title. R Two T O R I C O. Yeah, great title, and this is the one uh, composed by Philip Cochrel, I guess K O C H E R I L. If I'm pronouncing it wrong, I'm guessing the crackling record sound at the beginning of this is the poor. Yeah, part, yeah. <laughs> like as long long ago when we had no money. Yeah, <laughs> a great sound effect of uh, an old record uh, and a very yeah. longing Latin trumpet theme to start it out. Just when you're sucked into that uh, kind of ambiance, suddenly you're back in the present with a very lush and modern piano tone and an interlude from Lewis, who gets joined by uh, bass and drums. Now, trumpet and sax come in on a smooth and flowing 6-8 uh, meter melody. The tempo kicks up to a, a new fast Latin groove for an exciting, fiery solo exchange from Correo and Roberts. Uh, back and forth yeah, they we're, go. We're, we're Rico now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, now, now you're Rico. Uh, now we're Rico. <laughs> and uh, then there's a new uh, lyrical but tricky transition section from the horns into a rhythmically free solo piano interlude from Lewis. Uh, bass and drums join in and work it back to the fast Latin groove for some uh, conga time from Gonzalez. Uh, the horns join in for a held note and a reset to a new slow groove uh, by Lewis. This sort of matches at the groove that was hinted at in the opening old recording sound. Uh, the horns join in on a shared riff melody line and trade off uh, solo phrases again uh, to the ending. So it's a fun little roller coaster ride. <laughs> of uh, grooves uh, starting with that uh, kind of antique sounding or record tone but uh, very cool track eight back to uh, original composition from Carrillo Up the Down Staircase it's got a rubato ringing piano from Lewis to begin it with some building up chords bass and drums join in as Carrillo comes in with a flugelhorn melody Uh, Roberts comes in softly under him and there are answering bass and left-hand piano lines. The changes in rhythmic feel from 6-8 to groups of 4 are tricky, but it has this nice kind of cohesive flow to it. Carrillo continues on with a lyrical flugelhorn solo over the waltz feel uh, with nice skittering snare brush work from Sawyer. Uh, Lewis solos next on piano with a delicate touch, really fluid lines. The horns come in with backing phrases. And then Carrillo comes back with the melody, softly shadowed by Roberts to the end. Track nine is called Justice and Mercy, uh, in parentheses for Brian Stevenson, who I assume this is the American lawyer and kind of social justice activist. Uh, I think he's a New York University law professor. A slow and lonely rubato theme on trumpet sax and bass started out. Uh, Summers carries on the end of phrase with some busy figures. Uh, after the next horn phrase, Summers lays down a low, loping bass groove in three, joined by drums and piano. The horns come back in on a soft melody theme that builds in intensity and in register to a high cry. Uh, Roberts departs from there with a tenor sax solo, bringing down the intensity to work up a slow burn of a solo. He gets some really cool angsty edge rising phrases to a big, big climax before kind of exhausting himself uh, right before the drum solo from Sawyer, who brings the drums down soft to a pause uh, for the lonely rubato theme from the beginning with trumpet sax and bass to finish it. Well, Robert's really burned this one up. So I thought maybe Korea Mm -hmm. thought they just don't need a trumpet solo on here because the sax just uh, uh, steals Mm -hmm. the show. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I actually said not not just about this, but this is probably the solo that kind of made me think this. That because I listen to so much classical music, I have like this. I was I'm always listening for the architecture of the either the yeah. piece or the solo, and this particular saxo, and really throughout the album, the sax especially has like this real, like architecture to his solos. It's yeah. almost like he kind of had. Yeah, I don't think that they're planned out, but I mean, he—you kind of get the sense of where he he knows where yeah. he wants it to end somehow and how he gets there. And I kind of. Was it's maturity of concept, yeah. Uh, telling right. a story, yeah. yeah. We're going to have uh, track 10, Fly By Night. It's a unique piano opening of chords from Lewis to get this started. Uh, bass and drums join in with a clicky groove. has a fast 8-beat feel to it. The horns come in on a mysterious and open-sounding theme. It breaks for just piano to continue before building up again and then breaking into swing over bass walking from Summers and an intense trumpet solo from Carrillo with snappy phrases that just keep pushing forward. 
Roberts picks up on uh, one of his rhythmic phrases and then joins in and then continuing on for a solo of his own. It's kind of a cool effect, like a relay race where they're running together for a right. bit. Uh, and Roberts is really wound up here too. Uh, they let him fly free over just the drums to burn it up. Uh, he gets to strangling the tenor a bit. Great shrieks uh, before piano and bass mm-hmm. join uh, back in for a big finish, kind of channeling some Pharaoh Sanders-like intense spiritual tones mm-hmm. at the end. Uh, very cool. The horns finish it up with the melody over the clicky groove from the beginning. And we're going to end up, interestingly, uh, that here and on the previous Jacobson recording, the final tracks are piano trumpet duets, actually here uh, flugelhorn. And this is called Sublime, dedicated to uh, Roy Hargrove, the great trumpet player who uh, passed away a couple years ago. Rubato piano and flugelhorn on this lush tune. Uh, very nice phrasing, little pauses, wonderful communication with uh, phrasing between Lewis and Carrillo. Uh, it pushes in tempo and intensity before getting softer with the thoughtful cadenza from Carrillo. Some final chords of support from Lewis. It's just really uh, beautiful playing. At an hour and 17 minutes, this is a very long recording. <laughs> That's about as long as a CD can go, although now they're loading them up even more somehow. The meters, grooves, and arrangements are very tricky, but you don't have to worry about that to <laughs> to try to describe them yeah. like I was doing. You can just sit back and enjoy uh, the great Latin grooves uh, that are infused into all the tunes here. Carrillo's compositions are complex, but they're very interesting. Uh, his trumpet playing is top notch and always exciting. A wide range of expression from fiery to very smooth and lyrical. And uh, Robert's sax solos get more intense as the recording goes on, right up to that less really burning uh, solo there. I was intrigued by Lewis's piano playing as well. And Summers and Sawyer make a great grooves, and the addition of Gonzalez on conga gives that extra. Uh, Latin push. So uh, it's a very modern, daring in some ways in uh, arrangements of pieces, but uh, exciting all the way through. So yeah, recommended for great trumpet playing, good Latin grooves, and very interesting twists and turns in the original compositions. Yeah, it's like an hour and 17 minutes and really never a dull moment. There are a lot of mm. ideas on this album, not just in the compositions, but in the solos as well. I, I thought Carrillo had a lot of great ideas in his solos. I mean, mm. they, they kept me kind of, you know, wondering if they were going to go. And the sax also, I mentioned already, he had um, this, this sense of this overall form or, or an architecture to his solos. And they often, I, I said that I, I got the impression that he wanted to end in a certain place because the end of his solo on Crazy Stupid Fine, I actually singled out. I thought I found the ending of it really thoughtful. It sort of... Um, it ended in this kind of warm sort of, I don't remember what it was now, but mm. it, it made an impression on me. So, uh, yeah, yeah every, everybody's, there are lots of ideas in the composition themselves, space for ideas. It's a very spacious uh, sounding recording too. Mm. And yet everybody contributes so much too. It's really, uh, yeah, I could see why it's such a hard album to uh, parse if you want to yeah. discuss yeah. it. It's, it's, a, a it's like, uh, you know, trying to read this dense work of philosophy, hard to listen to, but there's a lot in it. And I think mm. it can repay, you know, repeated yeah. listens very easily. I had a big list, at least 20 some trumpet recordings that I've uh, spotted. Yeah, since. We could do another one soon. I think I've got yeah. some more trumpet recordings coming out in classical. So we'll see. 
I think it was 20-something since yeah. September, but these were the three that you know wow. caught my ear initially, and then listening deeper, I said, yeah, these are going to be the ones well worth uh, listening to. So uh, I think you've got some really good stuff. If you haven't listened to them yet, you're going to like all three of these, and you're going to like the classical this week too because uh, there's a lot of variety there. And who knew recorder could be so cool? Now we know. <laughs> it's also cool. Yeah. Well, I tell you, that's a new uh, discovery for me too. I'm going to have to go back and listen to those earlier Lucy Horse recordings. Yeah. I could hear Pretty that in stuff. some Baroque. That would be cool too. Yeah. Kind of a familiar association with recorder. But what you did on that uh, recording here with all this uh, variety of uh, styles and instrumentation was really cool too. And so next week, yeah. uh, tune in for episode 89. We're going to go vocal. Have some nice, yeah, uh, that's a recordings. rare excursion into vocal music for us. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, yeah. I'm, it's interesting because I'm most interested in instrumental music. It's just what I like, right. you know, I like yeah, me the too. tones I and too. timbres of that. And yeah. when I listen to vocals, I, I'm the most picky about vocalists. It's like right yeah. away, if I don't like the tone of your voice or I don't like your enunciation, out. I don't even care of the, it's about a very, the material. <laughs> You're out. You know? It's a very personal thing to the exactly. musician, though. You yeah, know, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of rough on them. You can, you can see why singers are always so the most temperamental people in the yeah. uh, in music because um, their voice is so personal to them. And if you don't like exactly. it, you know, you got nothing left. I mean, you that's can't it. change anything. You're out. You know, <laughs> it's that's your tone is your tone, really. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I've got some ones that I'm really excited about next week, and they're all very young. And uh, that's cool, too, yeah. because uh, I like uh, mature singers, both male and female. They bring right. a sense of huskiness. But there's something, right. you know, in this world today, we don't get enough of this kind of uh, exuberance of youth yeah. and that kind of joy and freshness coming to um, right especially in adult music like jazz adult and music yeah and classical so, you know that's something to celebrate what's odd about vocals in classical music is that it seems like there are just so many sopranos out there and th there are women who sing in the lower voice too the mezzo soprano yeah. and the alto and uh men in tenor and bass and they just don't make solo recordings it seems like only sopranos do that's there too are bad. loads of solo recordings by sopranos yeah. and you hardly hear any from tenors and uh especially basses these days although we'll have one next week that's good yeah because i can only take yeah, so much but, soprano yeah because when we were growing up there's you know you had pavarotti domingo and carreras but there were others as well you know they were mm. they were just the three giants you know of, uh right the tenor voice and then there were like baritones and that sort of thing. But now, I don't know, men have disappeared from classical music. It's, it's too bad. There are only yeah. a handful of them. It's really weird. Anyway, we'll keep looking, keep digging. If they're out there, we'll find them and uh, bring right. them out in adult music. So you got that to look forward to. And then next next week, as we said, we'll get to the new Ranitsky recording. Right. Along with some other good orchestral stuff. I've yeah, got this. Orchestral. i got something intriguing set up. <laughs> yeah. So thanks again for listeners and thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Do uh, check out the playlist for next week if you want to see these uh, vocal recordings. Get a listen to them before you hear the podcast. Those will be up on our playlist, the all-in-one place on Deezer. You can also find a link to it on our Facebook page after this episode goes up. Check later in the day. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'll 
put the clip to Tom Gowker's Something Came From Baltimore interview podcast. A lot of jazz, blues, and R&B interviews there. Also, check the links for the other podcasts here. Neon Jazz, more interviews, artists, musicians, and writers. And then for a sort of new community building kind of experience podcast, the same difference. Check those podcasts out if you're looking for something new to listen to. And until next week, keep listening and we'll see you again for episode 89. Gerald Albright, Rhea Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly.